yes, I want to get paid, but I want also want to make a difference. And I want to feel like it has a positive impact on not the, just the people around me, but the entire community and society as a whole. That's different than when I got out of school. When I got out of school, it was like, you didn't have to like the job. Who's going to pay you the most money? You know, we used to tell clients, listen, if you're worried about something, if you are having anxiety, specifically with regard to money, then I'm not doing my job right. We sell peace of mind. People will do business with you based on three things. One, they have to like you. Two, they have to trust you. And three, they have to know you're competent. And if you can check all three of those boxes, they will likely give you most of their business. And it's amazing how many people can't get past the like you part. I'm meeting someone and taking them from a stranger. And at the end of that meeting, after an hour or two, I'm getting about 90% of them to move every single dollar they've ever saved for their whole life. What are the odds of that? Welcome to part two of this special edition of BISA Industry Trend Watch titled, A Look Ahead 2021 and Beyond. In part one of this episode, we discussed critical strategic initiatives that will drive the future success of our channel. Opportunities with million dollar clients, successful business development processes, relationship pricing, and more. The discussion continues in part two with Frank Consolo of City Personal Wealth Management and Matt Griffin of Steward Concepts, a boutique financial institution affiliated firm. We will pick up right where we left off with Scott Stathis asking Frank about the need to attract more young talent to our industry. But first, let's show appreciation to Ameriprise who makes this series possible by giving them a minute of our time. We will then hand it over to Scott. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at Ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. So, so Frank, you bring up a, a lot of interesting points, but one of the things I, I, I can't help but commenting on is the need for more advisors in our industry. And um, so I'll, I'll, I'll put you on the spot for a second as the, as the current president of BISA. I think that's one of the things that BISA could actually get involved with, and that, and that is increasing awareness among college students of the social relevance of our industry so we we start attracting more college students and i think that positioning is important the social relevance of what we do and how we help people and um, if we can increase awareness of that and start recruiting more uh kids out of college to join our industry that's part of the solution um we've been having many discussions about that at bisa and i'm sure firms have too it also opens the, do the door to diversity right we struggle as, as an industry on attracting and, and bringing in talent that, you know, looks like the country. I, I, I love what you just said, the social aspect of it, because I've got two daughters, 24 and 26. 
my oldest was is a CPA, but hated her job. It didn't matter how much money they paid her. She wanted to do something that she felt was helping society and, and, and actually that she woke up every day happy to go to work and do something that made her feel good, right? So she quit. She just quit and got in a completely different, now she's in, in real estate and she loves it. But I interact with her friends and they all have that same, like, I'm going to do something. Yes, I want to get paid, but I also want to make a difference. And I want to feel like it has a positive impact on not the, just the people around me, but the entire community and society as a whole. So it's interesting that that's different than when I got out of school. When I got out of school, it was like, you didn't have to like the job. Who's going to pay you the most money? You exactly. Know? And, and it was all about the paycheck. And, you know, I always say, and I was an advisor for 15 years. My, I get goosebumps sometimes on some of the, you know, the things that I was able to do for clients and the feedback we got, you know. I mean, it, it, probably the, the one that I hold dearest, one of my dearest clients was an older woman, Italian, she and, her, she and her husband. They both lived to be 98 years old. Never day in the hospital, never sick, no drugs. One day she calls me on Easter Sunday. I was living in California. I answered her name. I called her Mrs. Spoldoro. Mrs. Spoldoro, how are you? And she said, um, oh, it's, it's very, um, it's, um, she was crying. She said, it's very sad. Ernest died. And I said, oh, I'm so, you know, her husband said, I'm so sorry to hear that. And she said, no, you don't understand. I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, don't worry. We have everything planned. You know, remember we had everything with the trust and, you know, and her account had done incredibly well. And she felt guilty that she had actually made so much money over the years. And she kept contributing it to her church and to, and to her grandchildren. And she told me, you're forbidden to ever tell my children anything about this because I don't want them to know how much money I was able to give away. <laughs> um, and, she, and she kept crying and said, no, you don't understand. I don't know what to do. And I said, Miss Fulder, it's fine. Don't worry. She goes, no, I don't know what to do. Ernest is in bed. I was the first person she called and her wow. daughter was 50 feet from her because she felt that bond and connection with somebody who had worked with her. Like she didn't want to bother her kids through, through life for the last 20 years to that. She bothered me. And, you know, it wasn't a bother to me. I loved helping her. I mean, to your point, I, I don't know if it was Matt or, or um, Sam who said, like, I helped her when she had to buy a car. I helped her when she, you know, needed to know who to go to for a doctor. I mean, she just called me. And I, to me, she was like my grandmother. And I just happened to manage money on the side for her. Um, and, you know, it's amazing when you get that connection with clients. Number one, you love what you do. It's not work. You go, you, you show up every day and you're like, man, I can't believe people pay me to do this. But, but the more meaningful thing is the impact you have on clients' lives, you know, and, and, and to their heirs and, and the whole legacy that they create for, their, for the you know, future generations is amazing. And that's the kind of stuff that you don't see today, next week, next month, or in a year. You see it 10 years from now, right? And that's when you look back and you go, man, I really had a meaningful impact on my community and on my clients and their families and getting to know their families. So that was the easy part, I thought. The hard part was just once you had the money, just making sure you did the right thing with it, you know, and that you felt comfortable so that they could sleep at night. But it's um, try, you can't teach that, you know, unfortunately, some people get into the job because it's all about the paycheck and they never learn that empathy part of it and the actual part of like the impact you have on clients. But by the time they do, it's usually 10 to 50 years later because they look back and go, man, I can't believe I did that. You know, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And then their clients, when they, you know, call them and say, Hey, what do I do? My dead husband is laying in bed and I don't know what to do. That's a, you know, that it's a great story. And I've heard a lot of stories like that. And I, I can't help but think if we can aggregate all those feel good stories, and there's so many of them yeah. and, and use them to communicate the social relevance of what we do to college students. There's no doubt if done right, that's going to increase the interest in our, in our industry and be part of the solution. So I, I think I it's think a worthy cause to think well, about. At BISA, we've been talking about how do we, with a diversity lens, go to the schools and find like, you know, or help the firms, right? Our members, 
in terms of expanding their um, training programs or how can we be, bring intellectual capital to them that can help them decide, you know, when, where, how to make a decision that's relevant to their firm. Um, you know, that's the type of things that we've worked with you and, and other consultants on. You know, also, you know, we've got to figure out a way to get more members um, into the organization so that we can have a more meaningful, you know, scale of, of um, you know, information available to our partners, right? Not just the member firms, but also the asset managers, the insurance companies, you know, and the technology companies that really look to us for access to our membership so that they can figure out how to take their businesses and apply it in banks, credit unions, you know, and independents and become more relevant to the to their actual members that we have today in BISA. Yeah. So, so thank, thank you, Frank, for those insights. And Matt, I, I think you have uh, a comment to contribute. I just want to let our listeners know that Sam had to drop off because he did have a, have a hard stop. Um, we won't be hearing from him for the balance of this podcast, but thank him for his contributions. Um, so let me turn it back over to you, Matt. And then Bob, I think you have another question you have queued up, right? So you can take it from there. But Matt, you're up. Uh, just to piggyback one thing that Frank said, I mean, it, it, you know, we used to tell clients, listen, if you're worried about something, if you are having anxiety, uh, specifically with regard to money, then I'm not doing my job right. We sell peace of mind. So for the past probably four or five years, anytime there was something topical that would scare most investors, most recently it's probably gain, you know, uh, I shouldn't say the name of the firm, but uh, the short squeeze situation and it's probably that, right? I have overwhelming, I'll come in and look at my inbox, I have overwhelming emails saying, you know what? We don't have to worry about any of this because we know you're worrying about it. So we're, we're at our beach house or we're in the mountains or we're playing golf or we're with grandchildren or we're doing whatever. We don't have to worry about, you know, this currency and what it's doing or, or, or this, this position or what's happening or, you know, the federal debt ceiling and are they going to have a deal? We don't have to worry about any of that because you worry about it. And I say, that's exactly right. And then I come back with, if you ever have anxiety about something, either myself or someone on my team is not doing what we're supposed to be doing. So I couldn't agree more with what Frank's saying in that regard. Appreciate that very much. Um, so, you know, we're, we're talking about the advisor and let, let's focus a little bit more on the advisor for this next question. And we often talk on our podcasts about process and financial advisors process. Scott always says, you know, your process is your product, but how they interact and meet the needs of their clients is their, is their product. And Matt, as a producing manager, what do you feel is the most important skill an advisor should work on to be successful as competition continues to increase, clients' expectations continue to increase? What is that? I have a feeling it has going to have something to do with an easy button, but you know, what do you think? So, so and again, this is probably not going to be a popular answer, but it is one that I believe and have for 20 plus years. Um, I think it's related to soft skills. I think it's related to how quickly can you build rapport sitting across from a prospect? And you, you could say that's communication skills, or you could say, uh, you know, making things that might be complex, making, making them simple. But I always tell people, I host a lot of interns from our local university, and I tell them, we can teach you all the head knowledge stuff. We can teach you how to do an asset allocation. We can teach you how to do a financial plan. We can teach you how to, to, to close a sale, if you will, to use an old school example. I can't, I can't fix what your mom and dad broke. If you speak like you have marbles in your mouth and you can't build rapport, then it doesn't matter. You could have a CFP, a CFA, you could be a SEMA. It really means zero. 
some of the most successful people in our business that I can tell you don't have any designations, but they're, they're almost a financial politician. They can walk up to a tree and speak to it and get data, gather data, build rapport very, very quickly. So I remember one of the talks I had one time with about 30 interns at this university. And I said, listen, you know, in any other type of sales, if I was in car sales or I was in jewelry sales or something, the prospect's risk is limited to however much money they spend on the item. You know, Bob, if I recommend a, a good car dealership to you and you go buy a new vehicle and the vehicle is a lemon, you might be a little upset at me, but the most amount of money you can lose is whatever you put in the car, right? I tell these kids, I'm meeting someone and taking them from a stranger. And at the end of that meeting, after an hour or two, I'm getting about 90% of them to move every single dollar they've ever saved for their whole life. What are the odds of that? And I tell these, these 20 something year old kids, what are the odds I can meet with your parents and in an hour and a half, I take them from hi, nice to meet you to they just transferred every single dollar they've ever saved for their entire life. And usually my team is with me at these meetings and every, every student goes, there's no way mom and dad would do that. There's no way. And my team starts laughing and they said his close ratio last year was 93%. So if we meet with 100 people, 93 of them are clients. He can tell you the seven that he missed because I keep a whiteboard on this. That's the number one skill. I know firms don't want to hear this, but it, you know, to Frank's point about the big firms with their training platforms and their, you know, I went away. I started with a big, a big wirehouse. I won't say the name. Uh, it was a six week training program. They basically taught us how to sell. They never taught us what to do with the actual money if you convinced them, right? And their whole premise was, you'll learn that down the road. That's not that difficult. As smart as we want to make ourselves out to be that we really know all these advanced strategies. No, it's how quickly can Sally build rapport with Michael? That's the number one thing in my opinion. Uh, and that's what I teach our younger advisors. I say, listen, to the degree that you can build rapport and you can use your own method. I have a process the way that I do it. Uh, I use a legal pad and a pen and that's all. And if a client asks a question or a prospect asks a question, I'll turn it around and I'll draw it upside down and backwards and draw it out and explain it to them. And there's a lot of things I don't do well. However, the number one thing I feel I'm pretty decent at is I've had clients tell me, I've never understood that concept for 15 years. When you explained it, it was like a light bulb went off. Well, I just won that conversation. Even if they don't become a client, there's like a glimmer in my eye. I don't care if they have $300 to invest. If they see that light, and I explained to them, oh, here's what happened in that situation. This is why it's all over, you know, CNBC. And they go, oh, wow, no one's ever explained it like that. Um, so I think that's the number one skill. Uh, it's hard to, you know, it's like college football recruiting, right? You can have all the measurables. You can be six foot six and 290 pounds and they recruit this five-star kid. And he comes in and he's garbage, right? Well, what, why is that kid crummy? It's hard to measure the fire, the fire in their belly. And to me, that's the soft skills. So if I meet someone at a university and, and I don't care if they have a 4.0, I don't care if they have a 2.7, I want to see the social butterflies. Who are the best talkers in that group? That's who I'm recruiting. And, and you know what? It, it, it's as simple as that. Old-fashioned communication, the soft skills, as you call it. You know, couple that with the easy button. You know, Sam was talking earlier about uh, knowing the spouse and the kids and the family to maintain and go deeper into the race, relationship and the synergy. It's the communication process. And I think you've described it uh, absolutely uh, perfectly. 
Frank, I'm sure you have a, uh, uh, a good response to this as well. Well, I love what Matt said. He's 100% right. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of big companies think that, you know, we can, you can just take anybody off the street, teach them, oh, here's how you manage a portfolio, and here's what you say, and here's what you do. But you can't measure the intangibles, which is the ability to connect with someone. I, I, I go to trainings all the time, and I tell people, look, people will do business with you based on three things. One, they have to like you. Two, they have to trust you. And three, they have to know you're competent. And if you can check all three of those boxes, they will likely give you most of their business. And, it's, and it seems so easy. And it's amazing how many people can't get past the like you part because they just don't know how to have that, that camaraderie, that, that like ability to gab and, and to really just make people feel at ease, right? I mean, I know when I go out and somebody's trying to sell me something, I'm easy. I, I am sold so easily. People, I have a low bar, probably because I came out of sales. But it's amazing how many people can't even hit the low bar, you know, how bad they are. Um, like, I'm amazed at the real estate industry, how bad it is. Having just sold, like, I had a few sales in my life in, um, in real estate, and I've never really had a good one. The service model's broken. All they worry about is the commission. If you have a house for sale, they, want, they love it. And all they want you to do is lower the price. And if, you, and if you want to buy, all they want you to do is raise your price. I mean, it really is. Talk about a price-sensitive um, salesperson. That's all they know. So when I retire, my plan is legitimately, I want to go into real estate for fun because I love it. And, I'm, and I literally said, I'm going to show people how you do this because it's an emotional sale. And yet every, nobody realizes it. You know, I, When I sold my house, one of the things I did was um, I wrote a three-page letter about the house and about when we moved in, what it meant to my family, where, like where we went to eat dinners and the cold winters and, and, and the summers and how great. You know, So the first couple that got there, I was on my way out the door and my real estate agent was late. And she, she didn't know I had done this. I said, come in, you know? Well, I said, let me just show you around. I know you're waiting for your agent, but I'll show you the house. I know it better than they do anyway. So I said, the first thing I want to show you, I went upstairs to the bedroom where my daughter lived, her bedroom. And I said, see this room? When my daughter was six years old, we moved here from California. She woke up every morning and she looked out that window because another little girl down the street rode her bike. I said, on the third or fourth day, she said, daddy, I want to do that. We ran downstairs. We, she introduced herself to the girl. They became best friends for 18 years. Best friends. Saw each other every single day. I said, you know what? I could go on and tell you so many stories about this neighborhood. I said, they're my best friends across the street, down the road. We go on vacation together. I'm like, and I, I saw the little girl. The little girl's eyes lit up. She was so excited. I said, guess why? Her name was Nia. I said, there's a little girl your age right next door. I said, I just met her. They just moved in. The family ended up buying the house. And they and and then the realtor kept saying, "Oh, you can't raise the price." I said, "No, I know they want this house. They're going to either raise the price twenty grand or not getting it." It took all of thirty seconds. They called back and said, "It's done." And I'm like, "People don't know how to make an emotional attachment, and that's what investments are." So I don't know how you teach it other than try to get people to understand the impact they're having with folks, right? With people, with clients, and the meaningful what it means. Like when you start putting four hundred bucks away a month, and in twenty years your kid can go to college, you don't have to take on two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of debt. Like, I mean, that's like unbelievable, right? Talking about making a difference, but, you know, learning technology though, I mean, I think advisors have to do all that and, and we've got to figure out how to get them to embrace technology and not to think that robo and all this stuff as a competitor, it's like another quiver, you know, in, in your, in your quill that, that you, that you can use to, to, to really cement the relationship. Like you're sitting there 11 o'clock at night, you're not, I'm not going to call Matt, but boy, if Matt has a great website that I can go to and get information and then a calculator to look at a mortgage and stuff, I still trust Matt. I still want to do business with him. But, you know, I want to have access to information 24 hours a day because that's what, especially the millennials, they want to do the research and all the stuff on their own and then come back to you realizing that, hey, if I told you I'll do business with you, I will. 
Um, so it's, I, I think that's, that's tough because most advisors I interact with and that are in our firm and others, they view that as competition instead of saying, I'm going to embrace it and figure out how to use it and make my, my, myself, my team, my whole process better. And you mentioned the word process, probably the biggest weakness I think that we have as an industry is that everybody for the most part, because we're all a little bit ADD probably is really good at what they do. But if you ask them to repeat it every single day, you know, every week, every month, every year, some, I, it sounds like Matt probably does it. He's got it down how he does it. Right. And it works. Um, but we have a lot of advisors that are highly successful. They could do even more if they would have a process that's repeatable and, and something like when you call a client having an actual, I don't want to say a script, but a meaningful reason why you're calling them, not just to say hello, right? You can have the hello calls, but you also have to have those calls that, hey, I want to do a strategy session to make sure your portfolio is ready for next quarter. Not like, hey, here's how we did last month or last year. Who cares? That's over. What am I going to do going forward? Because, you know, it's a new, it's a new day and I want to know that you're like, as Matt said, that they're there for you and taking care, taking care of the, uh, of your investments. So, you know, a lot of it comes with just mentorship and teaching and, and trying to, you know, educate our, our sales force. The other thing I think is the, um, I don't know that firms put enough time or value to support staff. And I think support staff is so critical. They're the ones answering the phone. They're the ones sending emails. They're the one doing wires. They're the ones who, when you call and say, oh, we're so busy, we can't take on any new, and then the client thinks, well, they can't take on any, I can't refer anybody to them. So I think a lot of times we don't, I know what I don't think, we don't train those people appropriately. It's really like, hey, go sit with the other sales assistant, let, let him train you so that you can you know, learn how to do this job versus putting it through a really skill um, process and, and understanding that their foray into the client's like a teller at the bank. Many clients will do business with an advisor because the teller says, I trust Matt, you should do business with them. Boom, it's done. They'll do it, right? And yet the teller is the least paid person, you know, in the firm, in, in the organization, probably. Like, I think sometimes we should turn that upside down. The per people that have the most interaction and interface with a client should probably be, have some way to benefit, right? When the client does well and, and we deepen wallet share and cross sell a whole suite of products and services. Um, because I don't think we've done a good enough job in training those people effectively so that they could do more with the knowledge they have with the client. Thank you for that. And to all of our listeners out there thinking about selling their home, <laughs> write a letter about your house. And I think the most important part of that is you're not selling houses, you're selling homes. Between a house 100%. and a home. Selling, and you're selling the neighborhood, right? And what the neighborhood means to, to their lifestyle and, and the, the, you know, like, hey, guess what? There's an ice cream store half a mile away. You ride your bike. It's great. All the families get together there and that's where you'll meet the neighbors. Hey, the, guess what? They have a monthly a book club and all the moms get together and guess what? They don't read books. They drink wine, but you should, you know, nobody's supposed to say <laughs> that. Hey, they play, they play dice every Friday night. I mean, knowing what the neighborhood presents itself, it creates that, that, that vision of like, that's what I want my family to be like, you know? We, oh, we call I, it, yeah. I had six people make offers within two days and I met them all. And they were like, you know, it was kind of like, a, it wasn't a bidding war, but they were all like, why well, want it? And I'm like, then you're going to pay my price. Uh, lately, we've been calling it block tail, right? <laughs> we have the block together to have cocktails out on the block, right? Oh, that's great. Yeah. Instead of black so, party. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. During COVID. Yes. Uh, I think it's time to pass the baton. Well, Frank, I'm, ah. I'm sure that real estate agents shared their, split their commission with you, right? Yeah, they should have. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so a couple of thoughts based on uh, that, that stuff that both of you just said, uh, which I thought was really good stuff and really interesting. Um, and Bob, you know me, I can't help but say this one thing. And that is that if you think about what 
your product is as an advisor, if you really think about it, there's only one answer. And it and and that is that your product is your process. That is it, right? And I always say your product aren't the investment vehicles that you sell, the advisory accounts, whatever. Those are somebody else's products. It is the process by which your clients experience you and the value that you're providing. And and Frank, you're absolutely right. The majority of advisors don't spend enough time thinking about their process and how to strategically construct a process that reflects the degree of professionality and assistance that it needs to reflect to make clients trust them. So the other piece of that, Matt, back to what you said, and you guys tell me if you agree with this, is that uh, the most important part of the process, in, in my opinion, is the discovery phase of the process. So back to being able to be social or get people to open up or get along with people, a big part of that is knowing what the right questions are to ask and asking them in the right way, right? And so the other point that I want to make is that the majority of advisors that I've, that I've encountered don't spend enough time obsessing over perfecting the discovery process, perfecting those questions, how to ask them and the way they should ask them. So they uncover the things that really drive the client's financial decisions. So if you obsess over those two things, your process, and especially the discovery phase of your process, you're 80% there, right? The rest is going to fall into place. Uh, uh, I, I want to add just one quick thing to what you just said, uh, not to belabor the point, but uh, when I came up in the wirehouse, uh, we did a survey once of our clients. And at the time, our process was a three appointment process. And it was first appointment was just discovery. Second appointment was just the proposal. Third appointment was just essentially signing paperwork, right? So we did a survey one year and we asked all of our clients, at what point along the way did you decide to do business with us? 87% said the first appointment during the discovery. So then yep. we just shortened it. Now, it, now it's one appointment. <laughs> yep. No, that's, I, I love that stat. That's, that's, yeah, that's really great insight. Very cool. All right. So let me ask the, the last, well, it's the second to last question because Frank, we have a question specifically for you uh, related to BISA. But the, so the, the, the last question for both of you is what you both touched on at one point or, or another, and that is technology. And I'd love your views on the role of technology in meeting client expectations. And in addition to that, helping you create an effective process that becomes a differentiator for your practice. So, so Matt, maybe you can kick us off with this one. Sure. So uh, I've, I've got a, you know, a saying, and I, and I tell all the different firms this, I tell our clients this, I say, listen, um, if we want to remain competitive, if we want to continue to grow, technology is a must. It's not a, this is not a value add necessarily. Uh, maybe some things are now, but in the future, they're going to be table stakes. They're going to, you're going to have to have them. Uh, but it's most important that we communicate with clients in the medium that they prefer. For example, it's easy to sit here and quote and say, hey, we can do a Zoom meeting or we can do WebEx or we can do Teams or we can use our financial planning tools online. Like Frank said, 11 o'clock at night, log on, look at them. Um, however, if my clients don't know how to use Microsoft Teams, that's useless. If they know Zoom better, we need to learn how to use Zoom. 
The correct answer is not to go back to the client and say, you need to go take a training course to use the tool that I'm, my firm will allow. That's not the right answer. The right answer is not to go put something else on the client's plate. So we just essentially offer everything. And then we tell the client, if you prefer a phone, of course we have phone. If you prefer a WebEx, we can do that. If you prefer to never ever see our mugs, we can call you and do your account reviews. If you prefer quarterly appointments, we can do that face-to-face. The point is it's customizable. So when clients ask that question or prospects ask that question, how often will I meet with you? I quote a standard. My standard service model looks like this. However, it can be tweaked. Some clients tell me, don't ever call me unless it's after nine o'clock at night because that's when all my small children go to bed and that's when my wife and I can drink a glass of wine. That's when we can talk to you. We can't think at seven o'clock because there's babies crying in the, back, in the background. So it needs to be customizable. In the future, what does that look like? I don't think any of us know that yet. Maybe that's through an Apple Watch or maybe that's through glasses that we will wear. The point is, it's going to be interactive and it's going to be timely. And really nothing the firms can do is going to be able to prevent that. I remember 10 and 12 years ago with my prior firm standing on stages in front of thousands of people and pounding the table about social media and saying, we have a three-year head start over the wirehouses, but eventually we're going to have to have this. And in 10 years to say, I have a Facebook page is going to be like me telling someone, I have this really revolutionary tool called a typewriter. Like you're going to become a joke. That's not a differentiator anymore, right? (laughs) In my opinion, that's where we are now. Again, at that inflection point with technology, it's not going to be whether or not, you know, is it coming? It's coming regardless. The question is what firms and what advisors and what teams are going to be ready for it and be on the front end of that curve. That's the way, that's the way I view it. So Matt, here's the irony. The irony is a differentiator is not having a Facebook page (laughs) and another differentiator for big companies. And I've said this many times, and it's interesting. If you really think about this, you want a real differentiator. If you're a big company, have an actual person answer the phone when a customer calls, not a voice activated prompt, right? Right off the bat, you're differentiated. It's not that hard. So, so Frank, let me pass it over to you and, and get your thoughts on the same, the you same know, I question. I say that all the time. I'm like, if you really want to make a difference and, and, and build a marketing team around it, a, mar- a campaign rather, right? Around, hey, guess what? You call us 24 hours a day, you get a live person. Yeah. You know, no voicemail. Because I guarantee you there's enough people that would say, I'm, I'm going to do, do business with them. Agreed. I would be one of them. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, you know, look, it's kind of table stakes, right? And, and Matt said it well. It's, it's expected now. Um, and as I said earlier, the average age in our industry is older. It's, you know, I mean, well, given how old I am now, I think it's very young, actually, you know, like that 55 is the average age. I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> you no, know, but, you know, it's hard to teach people or get them to change. Now, you know, in COVID, we had people that were forced to change and including clients, advisors. And that's one of the one of the big positives come out of this is that many of us. In the, in the sales ranks and management, learned how to adapt, change more quickly. Realized that if you didn't, you were probably going to die. I don't, I don't mean die death, but die in the business, you know. Um, and your, and then within months, your clients expected it. I mean, look how quickly the insurance companies had to go to e-signature. Every single one of them didn't have it set up, and within ninety days, they all had it ready to roll. You know, I think the challenge. I know in my world, what I face. Not so much the, at the individual level, the firms have not been able to keep up and the regulatory agencies haven't been able to keep up because as technology changes and you can do more and more quicker, faster, easier, unfortunately, the regulation and, and the compliance departments have been so um, 
unwilling, right, to, to step out on a limb and approve things. So what happens is technologies that are out there that would be great to use have not been approved on platforms. Um, or, you know, the ability to actually make comments on LinkedIn is like, no, you can have a page, but you can't comment because we haven't approved it. Or you can have Facebook, but you're not allowed to like anything. And I mean, we kind of limit what people can and can't do, which is very unfortunate because then what happens is we don't use to the fullest extent um, the technologies that's available. But look, if, the, if people don't embrace it, they'll, they'll be dinosaurs. And yeah, they'll have a few clients, but they won't grow because others that are, will, will, it's not a differentiator, it just makes it look like a much better place to do business, right? I walk in and as Matt said, hey, you don't want to see me, you don't have to. We can do this, we can do this, we can do this. You know, hey, you have, I've got 10 different flavors of vanilla here and, and we can make sure we're going to provide a service level that's conducive with what, how you want to be treated, you know, and how you want to interact and, and do business with us. Like I've embraced some technologies because I have young daughters, right? I never thought I'd be Snapchatting. Now I Snapchat all the time because you know what? That's how they want to be communicating. If I text them, they don't respond. If I Snapchat in seconds, they respond <laughs> back, you know? Um, now my oldest, it's Instagram. So now um, I must have 50,000 pictures. Actually, I know I have over 50. I'm taking pictures of everything. I'm posting them to a senator on Instagram. And, you know, one, once you, once you like start to do that stuff, then you're like, wow, I can't believe I wasn't doing this sooner. But, you know, there's all sorts of things that you can utilize. I mean, whether it's Google Translate, right, is a great one. I know that a lot of our advisors use for clients that are from, you know, outside the U.S. They speak English, but it's their second language. And there's things that you can use that maybe they don't even realize are out there versus having to go learn a new language. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it is amazing. So, um, Frank, while you're while you're on a roll, Bob has a question for you that's BISA related. So, so. So let me let me hand exactly. it back to Bob. Exactly. I mean, we have to take advantage of having the current president of the BISA on the BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. So we have to ask you, you know, the last time we were all together was at a BISA meeting in March, right? Um, last year. A year. Hard to believe. A whole year. And we all look forward to the next one that's coming up in July. But, um, you know, you're the president. And, and how has the BISA pivoted in the last 12 months? What's your vision, you know, for the organization going forward and how will, um, where will this new normal take the organization? So, look, I think we pivoted early on, as you said, um, one, we had really great news when we left the conference. So the conference was the first week of March um, and we were really concerned that when people left there, you know, would there be, you know, viruses or anything. That, and we were fortunate that within not a single person um, became ill, not one. So, you know, I think that was a big positive. Unfortunately, right, we all went back to our respective banks and brokerage firms and realized that we were told to, you know, shut down. Um, like you, Bob, I remember when I was talking, I, I was here in Florida, never made it back to New York because I was told, hey, you, you know, travel's on a shutdown. I'm like, well, you know, it's March, it's kind of cold back east, you don't have to tell me exactly. twice. Exactly. <laughs> but um, look, we put our heads together, the board got together with, uh, you know, with Smith Buckland and, and, and Jeff Hartney, our executive director. And we tried to say, what could we do to try to stay in front of our members and to be relevant. So we put together, um, like we had a weekly call series where we had industry um, speakers and professionals come in and, and spend time. Many of them did it, um, you know, gratis, uh, just saying, hey, we want to help and we want to be there for your members. And, and, and we got really positive feedback on a lot of them. I know we had Victory Road, who is uh, former sports and military people, uh, and they did like an eight-week series, 30 minutes a week. That got a lot of um, positive publicity. We had um, Richard Wildman, um, former CEO of Ritz, who came in a couple times. And then we had just leaders from different bank and brokerage organizations talk about their business and how they were adapting and 
how they were working within the, the confines of, of, of a pandemic. And we learned a lot, right? I mean, I think one of the things that came through is that our industry is very willing to share information and to try to help one another. Even though we're friendly competitors, I think we all realized, hey, we're all, you know, if one succeeds, we really ultimately all will. And um, at the management level, we had a lot of, uh, you know, monthly calls and even weekly, right, on best practices, how they were you know, handling, like, for example, audits, since you couldn't get to the branches and, you know, how when people work remote, how are they interacting with clients? Can you use Zoom, Zoom or Skype? And, you know, so we really became, I think, a place where people could go and get information, number one, two, where we kept, we, we stayed relevant with what was going on in the industry. Um, we, we still had our, in the fall, we had our uh, legal and compliance, you know, in, in a virtual setting, um, our legal and compliance, um, a two-day meeting. And then, you know, we continue to, to provide um, intellectual capital, much that like, like you and, and, and um, your group has, has offered to us and you've, we've um, distributed out to, to our members, which has been great. So we've had, I, I think, a lot of opportunities to kind of work together. And I think we were able to execute a little more quickly than usual because everybody was stuck at home. So, you know, schedules were a little easier to get together, but there are challenges, right? The challenge is, you know, the, the, unfortunately, I think a lot of people look at BISA and say the annual convention is, 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 is why I'm a member because that's where I network and I go for the week and Hey, it's March, it's in Florida. It's a great time. Um, what we have to do is make sure that, that people understand there's a lot more to BISA than that, right? There's a lot of intellectual capital. There's a lot of information relative to compliance, right? To how to build a program, how to, how to align incentive compensation programs, you know, things that everybody has to confront if you're managing a program. And then, and then the other thing we were, we were their conduit to the asset managers, insurance companies, and, and, um, other member members, right. That are looking for access to the bank, credit union, and financial services members. One, to talk about what's happening in the product sets, uh, new product offerings. You know, we saw rates drop. So annuity companies really saw a steep uh, decline in their sales. And so I know we had a couple of calls on, on what we could do to potentially make members aware, right? And, and how we could bring to the table ideas and opportunities that the insurance companies had so that people could take it back to their respective banks. But ultimately, I mean, what we've got to try to do is continue to grow the organization, right? We've got to figure out how to, and, and how to get new members. We've had a really good start in the last 60 days to this year. We've added several new, new banks and members. But, you know, there is a concern, right? As consolidation continues to happen, we saw M&T by Peoples. For that, we we uh, we saw um, SunTrust merge with BB&T to form Truist. So you take two right there. You go from four members to two, and and there's going to be continued consolidation. Um, and then of course, then those firms it takes you know they're now focused on merging two organizations versus maybe really running that you know the wealth management program. So you know I think if we can provide you know look ideas solutions continue to be in the, at the forefront of being visible, right? Visibility is going to be critical and being able to make sure that we can have um, the people that are looked upon as leaders in the industry, able to opine and really give back, get feedback information and timely information that's relevant to people for their programs. I think the next piece would be, we've really made an all out effort on trying to um, really expand the diversity inclusion um, segment of, of the entire industry. Um, we, we formed a DNI committee, They've been incredibly um, successful at doing some things. We had the Rising Star program. We expanded that this year. 
So I think that there's some things we have in the works that we're going to um, try to execute on in, in, in this year that should be um, really relevant. One is going out and looking to try to figure out how can we embrace and include minority-owned banks, right? That probably don't have investment programs, but we can go out to them and actually then take the leaders of the programs and of BISA, the board and others, and say, hey, we can show you how to do this. We can help you. You can build a program. And guess what? When you have a program, then you can be a member. But we can bring them in in the meantime and expose them to a lot of successful people that can help them get that off the ground. So, And there's hundreds of them. Or actually, there's thousands of them. But um, there's hundreds that would meet our criteria that, um, that would be just a really meaningful impact on the industry to try to say, hey, this is what we can do as an organization to, to, to really grow the whole you know, aspect of diversity in the uh, wealth management space. So you know, more to come. I think we've got a very engaged board. Uh, our membership is, is vibrant. You know, there's, there's a lot of banks from all areas of the geography in the U.S. We've got credit unions, we've got small banks, community banks, big banks, you know, and regional. So, you know, that you really do get a flavor for what's going on in the industry, in the bank brokerage world, right? And I think from the standpoint of the third-party marketers like Cetera or um, Raymond James and, and, and others, you know, that allows us to really get an understanding, too, of what's going on in some of the smaller, you know, banks that, that might not compete or be in the major cities, but you know they have the same needs as the large institutions, just in, in a different geography. Yeah, I, I, and I can't agree more. I think the uh, the relevance of BISA during the pandemic with education, information, virtual networking, um, all the programs around diversity inclusion, um, and actually, I remember being invited to a virtual cocktail party as well. So yeah, the virtual know, I, networking as well. So I got to tell you, I'm not big on these virtual like drink things because I'm like this doesn't make sense to me, but. I said, okay, I'll do this. It was very fun. That One, was good. It was yeah. very good. We had, a, we had a bartender who was incredibly entertaining. And, and you know, I learned how to make a, um, a couple of drinks that I didn't know about. And I was a bartender back in college. But it was, it was very engaging. And, you know, for an hour, it was a lot of fun. Um, and so I, I actually said, you know what, these can be kind of fun. And if everybody can't get together, at least we can, you know, see one another and, and, and you know, laugh a little bit. Cheers. And, you know. Oh, it, it was I, great. I, I, it was they mailed us all a kit of the of the ingredients for the cocktail. It was just. Yeah, and I think you end up you drink less too. You don't drink as yeah. much. As you <laughs> well, it's a lot cheaper too. Cheaper. So uh, we really appreciate and thank you very much for that. And also, you know, we have to plug the um, the the podcast that we're on as well because that is also another outreach of uh, the BISA to the industry on a monthly basis. We bring the numbers to life, and we appreciate our panel for doing that, Scott. Yeah, you know, and the other, lastly, uh, the thing that I'll plug for BISA is, is portfolio. So the BISA portfolio site is, uh, I think, growing in relevance, especially as, you know, properties like Bank Investment Consultant are, are less focused on our channel and are just an afterthought to source media at this point. So, you know, I think that's a, that's a good platform that'll continue to grow as well. Absolutely right. And I should have mentioned that. Thank you for, uh, for remembering that. Yep. Well, I think it's a wrap. This was a, a really good discussion. We, <laughs> we covered a whole lot of ground. Um, clearly, we can spend a lot of, uh, we can spend hours talking about this kind of stuff. So maybe we'll have you back in a, in a future uh, episode of BISA Trend, uh, Industry Trend Watch. Uh, so thank you again. Much appreciated. Hey. Bob, you have some closing comments? Oh, yeah. sorry. Go, Go ahead, ahead, Frank. Go before me. No, I, I want to say, hey, Matt, thank you. It, it's clear to see why you're highly successful, man. You, you did a great job and I really appreciate you uh, taking the time today. Thank you. Oh, well, 
Thank you, Frank. I was over here taking notes on about 80% of what you said. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to delve what I can and take some value from it, man. Thank you. I think, I think either Frank's going to recruit you, Matt, or, or he's going to come and work with you. I just said I'm going to work with him. Yeah. No, you're you're spot on. I loved your comments. Did a great job. Thank you very much. Well, and again, thanks to, thanks to all three of you for uh, for the, your participation on the panel. And a uh, shout out to Jeff Hartney, the executive director of BISA, Jason Myers, who helps a lot in these, and Janet Capaletti, who is uh, the numbers cruncher for us as well. To all our listeners, please subscribe and listen into all of our podcasts, this one and our Untangling FinTech and Industry Leadership and Success. So until next time, we hope to see you again. Thank you. Thank you all. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us for this special BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. And thanks to Ameriprise for their much appreciated support. We would again like to thank Frank Consolo and Matt Griffin for sharing their insights. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcasts. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode.